Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This January, a certain set of Americans will be celebrating their 70th birthday, the most senior of the baby boomers. But here's the thing. The 76 million newborns who came on the scene in the years following World War II are now booming in a different way. They're launching new businesses faster than anyone. According to the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, a nonprofit devoted to entrepreneurship, 55 to 64-year-olds made up only about 15% of new entrepreneurs in 1997. Fast forward to 2015, and they make up more than 25%. And here in the D.C. region, a growing number of these boomers aren't starting up ventures on their own. Hard to get these little crevices in here. They're doing it. This part tends to take me a little longer because I'm a perfectionist. With their kids. Is that a trait you inherited from your mom? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, we're both perfectionists. Mother-daughter duo Deneen and Ty Heath are the perfectionist partners behind 512 Dessert Boutique and Lounge, headquartered here at Mess Hall, the food business incubator in Brookland, where today Ty is using a speckle tool to spread buttercream on a birthday cake, a birthday cake shaped like a football helmet. Our motto for the business is that our desserts don't just taste great, they are a conversation piece. So typically, we like to get that look on people's eyes when they finally say, oh my God, is that a cake? The goal is to turn 512 Dessert Boutique and Lounge into an actual, well, dessert boutique and lounge. Deneen and Ty say the district needs more places to sit down and savor sweets. In the meantime, they're catering parties and hosting pop-up events, an ideal match for their talents since Ty just got her bachelor's in baking and pastry arts. I basically learned everything from sugar to chocolate to breads and cakes. And her mom recently went back to school for business administration. My concentration was in event planning and special events. Deneen also does contracts management for the federal government, a 9-to-5 gig the former Washington Redskins cheerleader plans to retire from in the next seven years. How old are you? Right now, I'm getting ready to turn 50 in October. No, you're not. (laughs) So Deneen isn't quite a baby boomer. But when her daughter started baking cakes for family and friends at age 14, Deneen started thinking about a second startup career. That's why she went back to school. As a mother, you know, you naturally want to see her do well and you want it to be a success. And I'm like, what better way for us to make sure it's successful than for me to be involved as much as possible? And that's how boomer Bruce Thomason felt about starting a business with his daughter, Meredith. In this case, another dessert operation, Rare Sweets, a cozy, homey bakery that opened its doors in downtown D.C. late last year. Do you have a favorite item on the menu? I love the macaroons. And then Meredith makes the best peanut brittle. Meredith is in her mid-30s. Bruce describes her as the visionary at Rare Sweets. She's the pastry chef. She's the creative force behind this. He, on the other hand, is more like Deneen Heath, savvy with the nuts and bolts. For years, he's worked in private equity, buying healthcare companies, building them up, and then selling them. When we go into a business, we put together a business plan. How much capital is it going to take? What's the return on the capital going to be? What are the risks and so forth? And that's precisely why Meredith asked him to join forces. I'm a visionary, but I need to be brought back to reality a lot, and he's very good at that. So I said, hey, I want to open a bakery. I can't do this by myself. Do you want to be my partner in crime? In 2009, researchers at the Kauffman Foundation predicted a major entrepreneurship boom in the United States, not in spite of the country's aging workforce, but because of it. And they were spot on, says Bill Novelli, who used to run AARP and now teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. For one thing, he says, baby boomers have worked a long time. They've got experience and and therefore ideas. 
But on the darker side of things, he adds, Oftentimes, they get forced out of jobs. And so when they get forced out or they pushed out, they're looking for something to do. They want to be productive. Plus, he says, lifetime employment at one company is no longer so commonplace. The way the world works now is that uh, people may change jobs, they may change sectors, they may change careers. Or they may take what was once just a hobby. And they think to themselves, and you know that old cliche, do what you love, they'll try something in that area because they're good at it. Refinishing furniture or buying antiques or whatever it may be. For Rockville resident Marilyn Polin, it was making soup. I used to joke that I should have been in Florida playing mahjong, but that this was much more interesting. <laughs> Marilyn is the recipe crafter and co-founder of the vegan kosher soup company, Supergirl. Do people call you Supermom? Yes, they oh. do. Supermom. And it's, that's nice. It's very flattering. <laughs> Supergirl is Marilyn's daughter, Sarah, who was supposed to start the business with a friend till that friend had to drop out. So in 2008, even though Marilyn had already retired from a number of careers... I was a speech-language pathologist, volunteer coordinator at a social service agency, docent at the Corcoran. The home-taught master in the kitchen stepped in. And I I think she just had no idea what she was getting into. No woman should ask of her mother what I asked of mine. Did you know what you were getting into? Absolutely not. I I really, in a good way, lost a year of my life. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of peeling, chopping, cooking, and tasting went into launching Supergirl as an online ordering business. It was a privilege to cut my nails. I was so busy, really. Before long, though, they opened this cafe in Tacoma Park, another in downtown Washington. And now they have a staff of 23. And it's great because she's now sane again, and she has two beautiful granddaughters, my nieces, and can spend time with them. But she's still very involved in the back end, in more of an advisory role, I guess. I listen. I I listen a lot when when she's at the end of her rope. Who are you going to call? Your mother, you know? (laughs) And Marilyn sees her role as advisor, business partner, and yes, mom, as a privilege. Now, taking on such a role might not be for everyone. You might not have the capital. You might still enjoy your current job. Or after a lifetime of hard work, you might just want to slow down. But if you have the opportunity to try something new, says Supermom, why not at least try a little taste? If it comes your way or you have to find it, do it. It makes life interesting and exciting and go for it. You never know what'll happen. In fact, it just might be the recipe for sweet success. And now we turn to you. Are you a baby boomer who's started your own business? Are you thinking about starting one? Tell us your story. Send an email to metro at wamu.org. At the annual back-to-school mass at Catholic University this month, the air was filled with expectation. So um, Pope Francis is coming to Catholic University, as you know. In less than two weeks, Pope Francis will hold a huge mass outside the Basilica in Northeast D.C., and the campus is already a buzz. Right now we're waiting because for like tickets because there's a lottery for students to get tickets. It was kind of something everyone was talking about right when I was coming to town to like see the college and like, so... 
Pope Francis is coming. I think it's a beautiful thing. He is a Pope of the people. I really love how like he's trying to remain humble as Pope. Like that's he's one of the biggest leaders on the planet. He'll go out of his way, you know, to to go to soup kitchens in Rome. He'll sneak out. He'll he'll give the Swiss Guard a heart attack, you know. And it's that sort of just unbounded love for other people that really is what the world needs to see right now. So students are obviously excited the Pope is coming, but for administrators at DC's three Catholic colleges, Francis isn't just a rock star Pope. He's basically their new boss. Catholic University, Georgetown, and Trinity Washington University all have very different relationships with the Vatican. But as Joe Orminski tells us, school leaders at each of them are feeling what's been called the Francis effect. If you run a Catholic college and you care about how people connect with the faith, the Pope Francis era is undeniably productive. John Garvey, the president of Catholic University, recalls seeing Francis in Brazil with students in 2013. People would just run up to his car, which was an open Jeep, and, you know, they were throwing flowers in, and the driver would get smacked in the face by, by the flowers. People would hold their babies up to kiss him. I, I think it's a wonderful thing for the church that he's been so open and unaffected and inviting. Across the street from Catholic U is the much smaller Trinity Washington University, where Patricia McGuire has been president for the past 26 years. She says she now finds herself paying fresh attention to what the Vatican has to say. You know, I read all of the encyclicals and statements of John Paul II and Paul VI before him and Benedict, and, and as an academic professional in a Catholic institution, I've studied that. But there's something about Francis that is so compelling that I really want to do it personally and not just because it's my job. Across the city on the Georgetown campus, Father Kevin O'Brien, vice president for mission and ministry, says students in particular tuned into Francis's encyclical on climate change which linked environmental stewardship and economic justice. I've heard that encyclical invoked by students in a way I've never heard papal encyclicals invoked before. They, they get it, and the message resonates. That energy is important on Catholic campuses, says Michael gallagher Sturl, head of the Washington-based Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, which represents about 200 schools. There are a lot of non-Catholics on those campuses. Even some people say, you know, I really like our new pope. And you're going, that person's not Catholic. He just used our. That, that feeling for an administrator just makes you proud to be associated with a Catholic institution. At Georgetown, that idea of our pope has a different meaning. Francis was trained as a Jesuit, the religious order affiliated with Georgetown. Jesuit schools sometimes are accused of not being Catholic enough, but Father O'Brien says Francis's papacy is a reminder that the order's openness to contentious ideas is still deeply faithful. This pope is very much engaged in the world, and universities have to be in dialogue with the culture and the world. And those dialogues can be messy and confusing, but it's important that the church has a voice in them. The pope's emphasis on social and economic justice has particular resonance at Trinity, says Patricia McGuire. The typical student there is a young D.C. area woman from the lower rungs of the economic ladder. Most aren't Catholic. It's not just about one population of people. It's about all kinds of diversity. And our job is to be welcoming and to extend hospitality and to extend service and help to all people who come to us. Pope Francis may have changed the tone at the Vatican, especially on issues such as homosexuality, divorce, and abortion. But the church is still the church. The Vatican bureaucracy is not prone to drastic changes. Again, John Garvey of Catholic University. The biggest mistake people can make in thinking about 
changes in the pontificate is to imagine that it's like American politics and that we've substituted a Democrat for a Republican and a whole new party platform and so on. The platform is the same as it was. And while Francis might be known as the people's pope, he's still the boss of a global institution. What do you think you might say to him when you meet? I'll be (laughs) (laughs) tongue-tied. He doesn't seem like the kind of person that uh, uh, you can be tongue-tied around. No, he doesn't seem to stand on ceremony, Mm -hmm. does he? Uh, So that will be reassuring, but I'm sure I'll be be stepping on myself anyway. I'm Joe Warminski. You can hear more about how the Francis effect is playing out on D.C.'s Catholic campuses on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, after sewage spilled in a Fairfax lake, has the county fixed the problem? It scares the bejesus out of me. I mean, it's scary. I hope they know what they're doing. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. We head now to Fairfax County, Virginia, near Seven Corners, where Arlington and Fairfax meet. That's where you'll find Lake Barcroft. Scattered around the 135-acre lake on curvy streets and cul-de-sacs, you'll see a neighborhood of about 1,000 mid-century homes on large, grassy lots. You'll also spot five sandy beaches where people take their pets or go for a swim. But lately, the water has not been safe. Four times last year, huge amounts of raw sewage spilled into the lake. But the county didn't tell the people who live there. The county says the problem is now fixed. But as Michael Pope tells us, residents aren't so sure. It's hot as a bride out here. That's Sheila Wayman, a longtime resident of Lake Barcroft. She's opening the sliding door to her back porch, which offers a sweeping view of this private lake. The smell was overwhelming. You knew there was a problem. Wayman and many of her neighbors are still upset about what happened last year when a series of spills dumped 365,000 gallons of raw sewage into the lake. It was disgusting. It was like a toilet overflowed and nobody took care of it on a 99 degree day. And it was just bacteria and gassy smells, and it was disgusting. Did the county ever inform you about what had happened here? I never received anything by mail. I never got a letter saying that there was a spill and how it was rectified, who did it, if there was any ramifications. Word of mouth and rumor and gossip spread the news while the county remained silent other than a few small paper signs that went mostly unnoticed. Kay Corey is a Democrat who represents the area in the House of Delegates. There were people swimming in Lake Barcroft after it had been contaminated. There were pets drinking the water. There were people using the water to water their gardens. All these activities were going on, and every time a citizen touched or used the water, they were being exposed to danger. And I know a number of people who really became sick, became ill. 
Fairfax County officials say that the problem has been solved, that the spill that sent hundreds of thousands of gallons of raw sewage into the lake was the result of temporary equipment used while retrofitting the old 1950s sewage pipes. Randy Bartlett is Deputy Director of Fairfax County Department of Public Works and Environmental Services. Since this event, we worked out an arrangement where we notify the Water Improvement District as soon as an event occurs. The Water Improvement District is essentially a homeowner's association for the lake, a man-made body of water. Bartlett says the county has no plans to inform residents if something like this happens again. The plan in the future is to inform the Water Improvement District. Why not have the county directly notify folks? not sure I have a means or method right now to make sure that I notify all of the proper people and to identify who all might be impacted by a sanitary sewer spill. I don't agree with it. I think it's inadequate. I don't think it's in the public interest. Delegate Corey is not happy with the county's solution. She says she's already preparing legislation for the next General Assembly session. I think the state should require that those residents who would be adversely affected by a sewage spill need to be informed in a timely fashion. I think that has to be part of our state code. Back at the lake, longtime resident Rita Babon says she worries the county's aging infrastructure won't be able to handle all the new development proposed at nearby Seven Corners, which will bring thousands of new residents. I think when it comes to infrastructure, whether it's sewers, roads, whatever, I think we have a problem. And I, I hope they're going to be on top of it this time. Earlier this year, state regulators hit Fairfax County with a $27,000 fine for dumping raw sewage into the lake. But the county faced no penalty for failing to notify residents. People here say the next time this happens, they want to hear about it directly from the county while it's still a health hazard instead of after the fact. I'm Michael Pope. These days, more and more people are graduating from college. But students from different backgrounds aren't finishing at the same rate. In 1970, 40% of young people from the wealthiest families finished college. Now it's 80%. But only 9% of the poorest youth have a degree. That number has hardly changed for decades, even though far more low-income students are now enrolling in college. Despite major efforts to help poor students get into college, just one in four who enroll ever graduate. WAMU's special correspondent, Kavitha Cardoza, set out to learn why these students are falling through the cracks. Each year, she produces a documentary for a series called Breaking Ground. This year's edition is called Lower Income, Higher Ed. It explores the challenges poor students face once they get into college. And joining us now in the studio to discuss those challenges is Kavitha Cardoza and documentary producer Kristen Sorensen. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Rebecca. Now, I understand in the documentary you follow one student. You actually met him several years ago. So first of all, why did you focus on just one individual and why this particular young man? Well, the best way to answer that, Rebecca, is to listen to some tape. I met Christopher Fisto when he was just 17 and a high school senior. He was talking about how difficult it was to live in a homeless shelter at the same time he was going to school. 
If I feel like I was tearing up, I go to the bathroom, I look at myself in the flesh, I'd be like, okay, Chris, calm down, just breathe. Just breathe. There was only one time where I slipped up and I actually cried in class. Tears were just falling down my face. See what I mean? You just wanted to hug him. His story was so compelling, it really stuck with me. And I was so upset when I heard he had dropped out of college. So I started researching, and the more I I researched, the more I found that his was a pretty common story. I remember um, when I first met Christopher, it was just a year ago, Kavitha and I went to interview him, and we were asking him about his time in high school, and he pulls out this folder just stuffed full of all of these awards he had received, academic achievement, high honor roll, and they were just laid out, fanned around him everywhere. And I remember thinking, this kid is just a superstar. So if, if he seems so promising and he seems so gung-ho about academics and college, why doesn't he thrive once he gets there? Well, there are several reasons. I think the best way to explain what what students like him go through is through the, the opportunity gap. So the opportunity gap is the disparities a child will face in terms of resources. So access to quality teachers, curriculum, exposure to arts and music, technology, you know, all those differences as they're growing up. And we know that those differences start really, really early depending on income, a child is exposed to 30 million fewer words by the time he or she turns four. Bernice Hodge, a DC student, talks about reading a play in her literature class in college. This boy just started reciting like some stuff from Shakespeare. I'm like, who remembers stuff from Shakespeare? I, I've never read Shakespeare in high school. And I was like, wow, like my mind is blown. I mean, that's the perfect kind of example of how the opportunity gap kind of compounds over the years. And then when students get to college, they really feel those differences are overwhelming. Yeah, we found that there were so many ways that these kids just repeatedly felt like they didn't belong. From small ways, such as like not recognizing clothing brands, to some bigger ways where they would be sitting in class learning about Germany. And so many of their classmates had actually traveled to Germany, whereas they had just, like, read about it. What then are these colleges doing to help students like this succeed? They're trying to be a lot more proactive. For example, at Virginia Commonwealth University, um, what they're doing is they run data reports to find out students who are at risk. So we know that students who don't declare major, students who drop a class because they're failing, students who don't register for a class, they are at risk. So once they get the names of these students, they kind of proactively reach out to these students and say, hey, what's going on? How can we help? These are the supports that are there for you. Some of the the supports for students don't cost money at all. I mean, there was one experiment conducted at Stanford University a number of years ago, and they asked freshmen to read the results of a survey of senior students at their school. The survey found almost all students, regardless of race, felt they didn't belong, but these doubts went away in time. So they gave it to all these freshmen, and there was no difference for white students. But it was transformative for African-American students. The experiment tripled the percentage of black students who earned GPAs in the top quarter of their class, and it cut in half the black-white achievement gap. Just this feeling that Others have gone through it, and yes, we belong. So 
we actually thought of asking our community here for advice so local teachers and students could share it with first-generation low-income students. And we had a lot of people write in that were first-generation students themselves, and their piece of advice was celebrate being a first-generation college student. WMU's Kavitha Cardoza and Kristen Sorensen, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you have advice for first-generation college students, it isn't too late to send us your thoughts. You'll find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, along with more information about Kavitha's documentary, Lower Income, Higher Ed. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This report was produced in collaboration with Renaissance Journalism's Equity Reporting Project, restoring the promise of education with funding from the Ford Foundation. Now we open the mic to you to hear your comments and feedback about recent editions of Metro Connection. Last week, we spoke with two female playwrights featured in the Women's Voices Theater Festival, which prompted Roz21 to call the discussion spot on. As a 54-year-old woman and a strong female advocate, I'm shocked that we do not have a revolution in this country. I'm going to attend as many of these plays as possible. And our story on making a living as a D.C. tour guide sparked a healthy debate online, especially in regard to union membership. Several members of the Guild of Professional Tour Guides tried to convince one of the women featured in the story, Becca Grawl, to join. Christian Eliasson writes, Becca, you sound like a great guide, but I think you would also benefit from the energy the Guild has. Tim Krepp, whom we featured several times on Metro Connection, chimes in, Not sure a poorly attempted guilt trip is the best way to get Becca to join the guild. Becca then responds, You are certainly not the first person to try to recruit me, but it is not for me. And when we interviewed retired D.C. police officer Ronald Hampton about the spike in violence in Washington, we talked about the community outreach tent police have set up in Shaw. We titled the story, Is a Police Tent Enough to Stop Crime? To which Anthony Pirtle wrote, In a word, no. If one of our stories gets you thinking, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. Or send a tweet to at WAMU Metro. In a minute what Washington's 19th century streetcars can teach us about modern transit. Streetcar lines were expensive to build, to maintain, and in many cases a disappointment to their promoters. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Dmitry Shizevsky spent years fighting for LGBT rights in his home country of Russia. He didn't want to leave his motherland or stop his fight for equality, but at a certain point two years ago, he realized he had to. He now lives in D.C. Lauren Ober met Shizevsky in the district and traveled to St. Petersburg to find out how people like Dmitry are handling the big decision to stay or go. There's a subterranean lair of sorts right off a of Grand Boulevard that bisects the city of St. Petersburg, Russia. 
The outside of the building that houses the underground den is nondescript, except for one detail, a sign in English hanging above the door. It reads, hashtag Black Club. It's a Sunday night and about a half a dozen young Russians stand outside the club smoking off-brand American cigarettes. They've come for the weekly rainbow tea party. Well, uh, we are in a uh, LGBT club uh, in St. Petersburg. I came here because there are very nice people here and a friendly atmosphere. Yes, and, and because they support LGBT in Russia. Olya Kamshalova is one of about 30 people at the LGBT, or LGBT, event. The club is one of the few gay-friendly spaces in St. Petersburg where large groups can safely meet. They play board games, strum guitars, and snack on free tea and cookies. Here, there is strength in numbers. But it hasn't always been safe. In November 2013, anti-gay vigilantes barged into the Rainbow Tea Party. I'll let Dmitry Shusevsky explain what happened next. One of the organizers of that meeting stands in the door. She was calling somebody, and those guys approached her, and they uh, said to her that we are here to meet one of our friends. And she asked what friend, and they started to push her in, and that's how she realized that something is wrong, and she rushed away from them inside of the building, and they started to shoot. The men who pushed their way into the gathering had pellet guns and bats. One of the pellets hit Shusevsky in his left eye. At that moment, I was thinking that I've managed to close my eyelid and that I will just have, you know, that blue thing. <laughs> you just have like a black eye. Yeah. Uh, so I closed my eye and I tried to hide behind the corner, but they yelled, where you go, faggot? And one of them reached me with a baseball bat, and he hit me several times. It turns out Shusevsky hadn't closed his eye when he was shot, and the pellet ended up coming to rest millimeters from his brain. All that I was able to see is just blood, but I wasn't thinking that I lost my eye. A little history is important here. Two months before the attack, the Russian legislature passed a law, quote, for the purpose of protecting children from information advocating for a denial of traditional family values. The law didn't make it illegal to be gay in Russia. Homosexuality has been legal there since the early 1990s. But it did forbid gay Russians from being open about their sexuality. Here's the architect of the anti-gay propaganda law, Vitaly Milanov, talking to the BBC earlier this year. Homosexuality is disgusting. Uh, homophobia is beautiful and natural. Homophobia is a natural side of people's life. Since 2013, violence against the LGBT community in Russia has increased as a result of this state-sanctioned discrimination. Human Rights Watch documented more than 300 anti-gay attacks in Russia the year after the law was passed. That's a tenfold increase from the year before. There were no attacks like that in St. Petersburg before that, so people were not prepared for this. The attack left Shusevsky blind in one eye and forced him to make a decision about his future. Should he stay in Russia and fight the Milanovs of his country, or should he seek asylum elsewhere? When I realized how many people think like that, I realized that there is no possibility that I will be able to change this country 
and I don't want to spend all of my life to fight with these with this craziness. In January, Shusevsky applied for asylum in Washington. He just got his work permit, and he's trying to find a job while his case moves through the U.S. Customs and Immigration Services. Shusevsky isn't the only activist who made the decision to leave Russia. Svetlana Zaharova of the Russian LGBT Network, the country's largest gay rights organization, has watched many compatriots flee. Right now, a lot of activists are leaving, and it's very sad for us because people who really did a lot for the movement and who could do even more, they're leaving now, and of course, many of them, they continue their work, but it's different if they are doing something abroad or if they would do it here. And this is the debate. Do you risk everything for safety and freedom, or do you stay and work for a better future? Back at the Rainbow Tea Party, these are the questions people are grappling with. About an hour into the event, the crowd gathers around a laptop set up by the bar. Shisevsky and another LGBT activist now living in D.C., Andrew Nasanov, pop onto the screen. The organizers of the event have arranged a Skype chat with the two men. Some folks in the crowd have simple questions. Dmitry and I listen to them together when I return from Russia and he translates. Do you eat? Do you sleep well? <laughs> Is everything good? Then the questions get more serious. Is that true that you can walk on the street holding your boyfriend's hand? Shusevsky responds to the question with a story. Uh, when I found a boyfriend here, we had a small problem uh, because I was really scared showing that I'm gay, that I love him, I was just afraid to hug him. He goes on to explain how much safer he feels in the U.S. That feeling is actually one of the reasons would be why I don't want to come back uh, to Russia, because that feeling of safety and when you can uh, hold the hand of your boyfriend, it's something that I really would not be able to get in Russia, and I really would not be able to act different now. To people who think he abandoned the cause, Shusevsky has one final thought. In the end, even if you decide to fight, you have to ask, for what do you fight? And the answer will be, for a normal life. So, that's just the shortest way. To win that battle. And with that, the Rainbow Tea Party bids goodbye to their activist friends in America. People go back to their board games and their cookies. Some, like Alexei Mazurov, reflect on what Shusevsky said. You want to be, oh my gosh, you want to be happy, yeah? You want to get married, and if to make all this possible you have to go abroad, you are very welcome to do it. You are very welcome. Asylum in America seems better in so many ways. But there's still so much work to be done here in their own country. I'm Lauren Ober. The D.C. region is home to one of the largest Central American communities in the United States. That community has been growing. 
Last year, some 70,000 young people from Central America fled their homes and came to the United States, and about 9,000 of them are now in our region. And while these days far fewer young people are making it across the border, the violence that was pushing them out of their home countries is still on the rise. El Salvador, which has a population a little larger than Maryland's, has seen more than 4,000 homicides this year alone. If the trend continues, El Salvador will outpace Honduras as the most violent nation in the world, outside war zones like Syria. WAMU's Armando Truel recently returned from a reporting trip to El Salvador. He joins me now to discuss how events in Central America are affecting people in our area. Armando, thanks for coming in. Great to be here as always. So we actually talked about a year ago after your first reporting trip to El Salvador. Tell us, first of all, why you went back and how things compared this time around. Well, we started monitoring what was going on in El Salvador uh, earlier this summer, and we noticed a very disturbing trend. We noticed that the number of homicides was increasing and was doing so exponentially. And we wanted to see why that was happening and wanted to try to understand what impact that would have on the quarter million Salvadoran immigrants who live in the metro D.C. area. And, uh, and things turned out to be quite, quite awful. Just a few days after I arrived in San Salvador, there was a massacre at a prison. It's called Quesaltepeque. So I drove out there, and it was very, very harrowing. There were police and military officers in full gear with their faces covered. They had uh, AK-47s, M-16s, and I saw a very... I don't even know how to describe it. There was a mother. She was desperate. And she was talking to this uh, masked officer. And she was trying to inquire whether her son was among the 14 gang members that had been massacred inside that prison. So he's showing her the pictures. And they're having a very civil conversation about a very, very uncivil situation. Rebecca, what was most surreal about that conversation between that mother and that masked soldier is that while she was very grateful that her son was not among the 14 gang members that were killed, I didn't meet too many people in El Salvador who shared that. In fact, most of the people in El Salvador that I spoke to were actually very happy that those gang members had been killed and for them, the tragedy was that it was only 14. It's being said that El Salvador is on its way to having the highest homicide rate of any country in the world. How do you see that affecting daily life for the people who live there? It's very, very, very tragic. I mean, people there wake up every day asking themselves, who will die today? 907 people were killed in El Salvador during the month of August. That is the highest death total in Salvadoran history. People people are, are just terrified. Will it be my son? Will it be my daughter? Will it be my uncle who was killed? And what is really chilling is that um, police officials and authorities in El Salvador are quick to point out the majority of those 907 people that were killed were gang members, as if that meant it was okay. Now, imagine if a U.S. police, imagine if Kathy Lanier, for example, said that well, we don't need to worry because the 30 gang members that were killed today, or the 30 people that were killed in the district today, were mostly gang members. As we mentioned earlier, this region has a pretty sizable Salvadoran community dating back to the 80s when people were fleeing the country's civil war. So when you talk with people in this local community here, how are they reacting to what's going on now back home? 
Well, uh, they're very scared. They're very scared because they're seeing a replay of what they saw 20-some-odd years ago when the Civil War in El Salvador was taking many, many lives. And so as they speak to their relatives on the phone, on the computer, what they're hearing is very, very frightening. I spoke to Salvador Celaya. He is a business owner here, has a construction firm in the district. He's a respected community leader. And um, let's take a listen to what the conversations that he's having with his parents. Well, I talk to them almost, you know, uh, every day because uh, I'm very concerned and, and they are very, very, very worried about it too. And, you know, so they are telling me what's going on every single day around the area where they live. And uh, it's terrible, you know, that they see dead bodies in, on the streets uh, almost every single day. Uh, that uh, situation is getting out of control. And so anyone who has relatives there has very good reason to be concerned because mostly the immigrants who came here came from neighborhoods that are lower middle class, and that's where the gang violence is. The people that, that are wealthy in El Salvador, they don't see it. WAMU's Armando Truel. Armando, thank you. Good to be here as always, Rebecca. I wish it were on something a little bit more pleasant. You can find links to all of Armando's reporting on the situation in El Salvador and how it's affecting the D.C. region on our website, metroconnection.org. Ill-planned, ill-thought-out, ill-engineered, ill-everything. That's how the late Marion Barry described, well, this. The streetcar D.C. started constructing in 2008 to run along H Street and Benning Road Northeast. You're hearing a test run from earlier this year. Seven years and many millions of dollars later, the streetcar has yet to open for real. But this isn't D.C.'s first go-round with this mode of transit. Streetcar lines crisscrossed the city from 1862 to 1962. And a new book takes us on a joyride through that century. It's called... Capital Streetcars, Early Mass Transit in Washington, D.C. And it was written by this guy. John DeFerrari. I'm a native Washingtonian and author of several books about local D.C. history. When I spoke with John about the book, we were standing in a rather apropos location. We're standing right now on H Street, northeast, the site of the streetcar that will soon, uh, or hopefully soon, appear for the first time since 1962, when the last of the original streetcars had its last run. John's book takes us back to the days before the first of the original streetcars had its first run. You may have heard D.C. referred to as the City of Magnificent Distances. That nickname was coined by a Portuguese diplomat who served in Washington in the early 1800s. As John DeFerrari explains, back in the 1800s, if ever there were a town in need of efficient public transportation, it was this one, thanks in no small part to those magnificent distances. The major focal points of the city were actually pretty spread out compared to other towns. There was the Capitol on Capitol Hill, 
There was the new Navy Yard, which was a bustling commercial center down on the Anacostia. Then a quarter of a mile away, the White House, and then Georgetown even further away. This was all spread out over about four miles distance. And so there was a real need for some sort of transport uh, for people. And in the early days, they really did not have a good answer to, for that problem. In the mid-19th century, when streetcars were first proposed, you write that many older Washingtonians were outraged at the idea. Why so concerned? Oh, lots of people thought it was terrible that you would run railroad tracks down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue. People thought that their peaceful existence that they had had would just be ruined by these newfangled contraptions. On May 17, 1862, one year into the Civil War, Congress finally passed a law incorporating the Washington and Georgetown Railroad. It had taken them about 10 years to do so, but anyway, they finally got around to it. The first day of public operation was July 29, 1862. That seems pretty fast. It was. It was kind of an amazing thing. The law required them to have their first segment up and running within three months. And this was an incredible task, especially given that they were in the middle of a war and supplies were hard to get. And yet, nevertheless, they managed to do it. The entire system was done in fewer than six months. Can you describe what that system looked like, how it was run? So this first railroad had three main lines. Always the most important line in Washington was the one on Pennsylvania Avenue. And this line ran from Georgetown, from basically Wisconsin and M Street, across Pennsylvania Avenue, past the White House, up to Capitol Hill, and beyond that, and then down to the Navy Yard. There were two north-south routes as well, one on 14th Street and one on 7th Street. The 7th Street route went all the way down to the waterfront. The cars were horse-drawn cars in those days, and the whole point of the streetcar really was to leverage the abilities of a horse, what they could pull. A horse could pull 10 tons on a streetcar. In the 1890s, we saw the streetcars becoming mechanized. By 1897, they were powered by the cable system, but as you write in your book, that system came to a very abrupt and, and rather disastrous end in September of 1897. Can you tell us what happened and why some people might say it was a blessing in disguise? <laughs> well, beginning in the 1880s, there was this big struggle to figure out what technology should replace horses. Everyone agreed we needed something bigger and better and faster than horses. And besides, we need to save the poor creatures. So the largest company in the city, the Washington and Georgetown, which had been the original one, their chief officers went on a, a trip around the country and looked at other cities and decided that cable system would be the best. This was in 1887. Their timing was incredibly poor because it was only the following year, 1888, that the electric system that all streetcar systems eventually would adopt that one was perfected in 1888, the following year. So they had already decided to go with a cable system. The cable system involves building a, a tunnel underneath the tracks where there is a, sort of like a long clothesline across the whole uh, length of the route. And there is a, a long arm that comes down from the car and grabs hold of that. It's a charming system. Of course, there's still a few of them running in San Francisco, but it's very cumbersome, very technically challenging to build, expensive, hard to maintain. So the power that runs, that moves these clotheslines under the streets all came from this grand powerhouse on Pennsylvania Avenue 
down where the Wilson building now stands. And there was a huge fire in 1897 at this powerhouse, a very dramatic nighttime fire. And the whole contraption crashed to a stop. By then, by 1897, as you suggested, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because the directors of the company said, great, that's the end of the cable, we're gonna switch to electric. So the early years of streetcars, we see this big boom. When did that boom start to slow down and why? The boom reached its peak probably in the early 20th century. The real peaks were during the war years, but it was those same years that everyone realized the streetcars were going to be in decline. And this was all because of automobiles and buses. Buses in particular, the bus system in the district really got going in 1921. They weren't trapped on their rails. If you had one breakdown, they didn't block all the rest of them. And they were seen as the new technology that was going to leapfrog us beyond the old-fashioned streetcar. We've seen this renewed interest in streetcars here in D.C. in the new century. Here we are on H Street, and we're standing by streetcar lines that have yet to be used, but, um, you know, the tracks are here. How would you compare the aspirations of today, that is, what people hope the streetcar will achieve in the city now, with those of earlier streetcar promoters? That's a great question. I think there are lots of interesting parallels. Obviously, the streetcars in the past were very successful and well used, but in many cases, lines were developed by entrepreneurs who had great aspirations for wealth and success that did not pan out. In fact, that seemed to be the usual rule. Streetcar lines were expensive to build, expensive to maintain, and in many cases a disappointment to their promoters. So I think that's a cautionary tale. It doesn't mean that streetcars don't have their place, but it means that you have to be realistic about what they can do to promote development and change a city. That was John DeFerrari, author of the new book, Capital Streetcars, Early Mass Transit in Washington, D.C. You can see photos of the early streetcars on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. Big thanks to our managing producer, Jacob Fenston, and our web team, which includes Chris Chester and Martin Ostermule. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past editions, subscribe to our podcast. You can find a link at metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages so you can stay in touch with us all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.